two of my sons were arrested on two separate occasions. Mm-hmm. And due to the amount of their bail, I was unable to bail them out. I spent my entire life doing my best to protect my boys. So to be in a situation where the size of my bank account kept me from being able to help them was heartbreaking. Why is money the precursor of that decides whether somebody stays or goes? It's a system that doesn't work no matter what people are charged with, because it's a system where the decision between whether someone is in jail or not is based on money. There are concerns and there are uh, fears about what is allowed, what amount of force is allowed to be used to take someone into custody. I don't think our communities would be satisfied with just citing them and leaving them there. We should really be paying attention to what the law says. I'm Sarah Fenske, and that law is the Pre-Trial Fairness Act. Yesterday, Illinois Governor J.B. Pritzker signed it into law. And with that, Illinois became the first state in the U.S. to end cash bail, or more specifically, what some now call pre-trial wealth-based detention. In just a bit, we'll talk to some experts who've worked to change this system, and a police chief who has some serious concerns about its fine print. But first, we want to hear from someone whose family has been affected. And joining us today to talk about it is Stephanie Taylor. She lives in Belleville. Stephanie, welcome. Thank you. So, Stephanie, how has the cash bail system affected your family? Well, I am a 52-year-old mother of three. I raised three boys singly. Um, We were directly impacted by this cash bond when two of my sons were arrested on two separate occasions Mm -hmm. and due to the amount of their bail I was unable to bail them out. And how long did they then spend waiting for the chance to go to trial? Uh, My first son in 2013 Antonio he sat six months to a year Mm -hmm. waiting to go to trial And then my youngest son, Terrell, he sat about a year as well waiting to go to trial um, before he was arrested. At that time, he had custody of his son. He was in school. He was working. Um, He had just received uh, the information, the word of my brother being murdered the same night he was arrested. Mm. So that alone... Um, And not being able to bond him out was definitely a serious impact on our family. And was it particularly hard to know that there was a sum of money that would get your loved one back into into your house or get them back with their family, but you just didn't have enough money to post it? Yes, ma'am. I spent my entire life doing my best to protect my boys, Um, working three jobs um, to keep them in safe neighborhoods and schools. different programs trying to keep them involved. So to be in a situation where the size of my bank account kept me from being able to help them was heartbreaking and sent me into a spiral of depressions. So wealthier defendants often just put up their house as collateral. Was that ever an option for you in either of these cases? It was not. Okay. So you've dealt with this now several times. It sounds like it was it was just so tough. What would you want people to know about the experience of, of families like you, where you have loved ones in jail waiting for trial? 
Um, I just like them to know that the Pretrial Fairness Act being put in place um, is something wonderful and it helps our communities um, and our people. Had the Pretrial Fairness Act been in place when my boys went into the system, they would have been able to continue to support our family while waiting trial. Um, I'm convinced that my son had he had the opportunity to say goodbye and grieve his uncle's death and put his son's affairs in order would have given him a better perspective on being in prison and incarcerated and would prevented him from being in solitary confinement for the first four years because everyone is innocent, of course, until proven guilty. Mm-hmm. So how did it feel yesterday um, hearing that Governor Pritzker had signed this into law? I was very excited um, to finally see it come to pass, the change that it's going to bring and the help that it's going to bring to the communities and to our state. So I'm very grateful that that happened. And I'm also grateful to be a part of that platform with the United Congregations to be able to be a part of that change. So I was very excited. Well, Stephanie Taylor, I want to thank you so much for joining us today and sharing your story. Well, thank you. And joining us now with more information on what this new law does and what it means is Sarah Stout. She's a senior policy analyst and staff attorney for Chicago Appleseed. That's a criminal justice advocacy nonprofit in Illinois. Uh, Sarah, welcome. Hi, Sarah. And we're also joined today by Marie Franklin. She's a network coordinator for Illinois Network for Pretrial Justice, and she's an organizer for that organization that Stephanie mentioned there. That's uh, United Congregations of Metro East. Marie, welcome to the show. Thank you so much. So, Marie, give us a little perspective on this. How long has ending cash bail been under discussion in Illinois? Well, you know, it's been under discussion now for several years. Uh, The Chicago money bond was created in 2016 where they were, you know, knew that this was a problem and were uh, creating funds to be able to help people, you know, get bond out, get bonded out when they didn't have the money. But at the same time, they recognized that this was just a Band-Aid on the problem because the problem is why do we have to keep bonding people out like this? Why is money the precursor of that decides whether somebody stays or goes. Mm-hmm. So in, in 2019, the uh, bond fund created the uh, Illinois Network for Pretrial Justice, where uh, organizations across the country banded together to, uh, to end cash bond in Illinois because it had such a devastating effect, you know, in particularly on black and brown communities. Mm-hmm. So this fight has been going on for years now, a lot of efforts leading up to this. Marie, what do you think finally got it across the finish line this year in particular? You know, I think that with the death of George Floyd, that that just gave people the sense of urgency that something needed to be done different, that the criminal justice system was uh, criminal and it was just us. You know, I'm African-American and it was just us. And so Mm -hmm. I think that kind of woke some people up to like, okay, this thing is not working. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, we were having, you know, 
pushing this uh, Pretrial Fairness Act to be passed. And, you know, the Black Caucus, the Illinois Black Caucus took up the charge in this and they championed this with uh, Senators uh, L.G. Sims and Robert Peters and Representative Justin Slaughter really put all of their uh, force and influence, you know, behind getting this thing done. But they also say that it was the grassroots thing. Hmm. The, you know, we had over 100 organizations who uh, endorsed the bill. Uh, we've had we've got over 30 organizations that belong to the Illinois Network for Pretrial Justice. And so it was that grassroots movement that, you know, let the, the, the citizens of Illinois spoke and said, we need this thing changed. Hmm. So, Sarah, I want to get some perspective on this. Um, You know, people are saying Illinois is the first state to do this. And then you hear from some people who say, well, no, New York did this. New Jersey did this. I know you feel Illinois really was the first. What are the differences between what it did and what these other states have painted as an end to cash bail as well? Sure. So Illinois is really the first state to pass a law that completely eliminates the use of money to decide who stays in jail and who doesn't stay in jail in every kind of case throughout the entire criminal system. And that's really important. Um, Some other states, New Jersey and New York, um, have approached cash bail as allowing it in some cases and not in others, which really it's a system that doesn't work no matter what people are charged with, because it's a system where the decision between whether someone is in jail or not is based on money. Mm-hmm. And you can be charged with murder or a misdemeanor, and that's still not a smart way to determine whether or not you you know, should remain in jail. And instead, we should be you know, holding that decision to a very high standard, right? We should only be holding people in jail if they absolutely need to be there. Um, and so that's the system that we... We'll switch with when the ball when the bill uh, becomes effective in 2023 for every single case in the criminal system. And now, we, the sorry. feds in D.C. I just have to because I'm a pedant. The feds in D.C. did do this in the 80s, and they've been operating on that system for ages, um, really without any negative effects. It is interesting you mentioned that because I feel like it kind of flies under the radar that that the feds did that. And if you look at the statistics coming out of when they did it, people still showed up for trial. Oh, yeah. Um, no, there's really we, what we found in the research is that there's really no correlation between whether somebody pays bail and whether they show up in court. You know, most people who miss court do so by accident. Right. Hmm. Um, and so the best way to make sure that people come to court, it turns out, is the same way to make them keep their like haircut appointments, which is you send them reminders. Um, And if you do that, that's the best way to make sure that people attend all their court dates. Now, I do want to make this clear to anybody who's listening to this and might be alarmed. Hey, wait a minute. Somebody charged with murder is now out walking the streets before they they go to trial on that murder. There are some exceptions for pretrial release. They're just not money based. Sarah, can you walk us through this? Right, exactly. So we definitely, under the Pretrial Fairness Act, still have a system where people can be jailed if a judge makes a finding that they pose a specific, real, and present threat to any person. So the state's attorney will make this argument. And, you know, they have to be able to say, look, this person 
murdered somebody, uh, that suggests that they are seriously a danger. We can look at their criminal history. We can look at other factors, a very broad range of factors. But ultimately, the judge is going to have to make that decision that somebody really does pose a threat to other people if they're going to hold them in jail. Because right now, so many people who are held in jail really just don't pose any threat to anybody else. And it's a waste of their lives and a waste of resources. So under the Pretrial Fairness Act, for sure, there will be many, many, many people charged with with serious crimes who are still detained. But we will do it based on a rational, careful assessment of their dangerousness level and not just on whether they happen to have a certain sum of money. Now, um, some law enforcement members have been very critical of this bill. Some of them are say they're fearful about some pieces of this. And in just a little bit, we'll hear from a local police chief who does have some concerns about this. But Marie, I, I want to turn to you here. I understand you used to be a police officer. Would you have shared those fears during your time on the job? And, and if so, I'm wondering how your thinking has evolved. Right. You know, during my time on the job, I... I even then recognized how inequitable the system was. And I really tried my best to uh, change the system from the inside. And it, it, it just didn't work. <laughs> so I'm so happy to be able to, you know, be involved with something that is really making a sweeping reform and, you know, can right those wrongs that I saw even back then. So even then, I mean, you would see people uh, charged with crime having to go to jail uh, before they'd been found guilty on anything. It sounds like that bothered you even at that time. Oh, sure. Absolutely. And, you know, and it would be something minor, you know, driving while suspended. You know, while, of course, you shouldn't do that. But really, does it mean that you this person goes to jail? They need a thousand dollars to get out. They don't have that. Their family doesn't have that. So they lose their job. They lose their car. They, you know, they, they may even lose, you know, some people have lost custody of their children because this was, this happened all of a sudden. So you weren't able to make any arrangements, you know, for children. So no, this, and I just thought, well, this is not, this got, it's got to be a better way to do this. Mm-hmm. So, Sarah, I mentioned the pushback from law enforcement. I know in New York, after they passed some of their reforms when it comes to cash bail, that was followed almost immediately by a major push to undo it. Do you think we'll see a push of that um, of that magnitude to try to change what's just been signed into law here in Illinois? You know, I think we're definitely going to see a pushback. But I th- would hope that for people who are really engaging seriously on this, they'll understand that We've really already had this conversation. There's been a bill with the goal of ending monetary bond in Illinois in the legislature for years. We've had a dozen subject matter hearings on this topic. There's been tons of law enforcement input on what makes sense. We've also talked to victims advocates. In fact, the two major domestic violence victim advocates groups in Illinois support the bill because they think that it makes their members safer. Hmm. So I hope that as we look at this bill and how we're going to implement it, um, we can all work together to make it work and not be relitigating conversations that we've definitely already had. This is a bill that's supported by a ton of people in Illinois, and it's a bill that has been crafted very, very carefully. Hmm. Marie, for people who might be afraid of how this is all going to play out, they're worried about how this could affect their community, what would you want them to know as we look ahead to 2023 and this all going into law? 
You know, I would want them to know that this is, you know, it is, this is a good thing we're doing here. It's a fair thing. It's a, a great thing. And the Pretrial Fairness Act, you know, in this country, you're supposed to be innocent until proven guilty. And the Pretrial Fairness Act makes sure that what we do on the ground speaks to that tenet of society. And everybody should have access to this, not only those who are wealthy. And because of that, that's going to make what makes our community safer by being fair to everybody, by, you know, making this thing an equal access to everyone and not just people with money. And that keeps our community stable, that keeps our community safe. And those are the things that makes communities better. When your community is thriving, when your people are thriving, when people are treated fairly, those are the things that keep our community safe. Well, Marie Franklin, Network Coordinator for uh, the Illinois Network for Pretrial Justice and Organizer for United Congregations of Metro East, thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you. And we're also talking to Sarah Stout of the nonprofit Chicago Appleseed. She'll come back after the break, and she'll be joined by Edwardsville Police Chief Jay Keevan. He has some thoughts on these changes, and we'll be back shortly to have that conversation. This is St. Louis on the Air on St. Louis Public Radio, 90.7 KWMU. Support comes from Missouri Forest Products Association, committed to sustainable and sound conservation of the state's forests, which support more than 41,000 Missouri jobs, resulting in a $10 billion industry. Choosewood.com. Welcome back. Before the break, we heard from some advocates who are pleased about a bill signed into law yesterday by Illinois Governor J.B. Pritzker. And one of those people is Sarah Stout. She's a senior policy analyst and staff attorney for the nonprofit Chicago Appleseed. Sarah, welcome back. Hi. And we do want to note there's more to this bill than just the um, cash bail reforms that Sarah was explaining for us before the break here. And some of these uh, parts of it are things that law enforcement has some concerns about. And so joining us today to talk about a few of them is Edwardsville Police Chief Jay Keevan. Chief Keevan, welcome to the show. Hi. So, Chief Keevan, I want to start with you. This all sounds so good. Why did this legislation face opposition from police groups? Well, I... To be clear, it wasn't just faced opposition from police groups. It also did from the state's attorneys throughout the state mm-hmm. and in um, the metro east area. So in southwestern Illinois, our local uh, senators and representatives, both Republican and Democratic, uh, voted against the bill. So mm-hmm. it, wasn't, it wasn't just police chief organizations that uh, have concerns. Now, just like with any bill that passes, there are pieces of it that are, are good, uh, and in this case, there are pieces of it, I think, that, that impact safety of our communities. Uh, we are hopeful. It's, it's been signed into law, so it's no longer a bill. It is a law as of yesterday. So we're hopeful that our local legislators will work with us to kind of get some cleanup language in there to help us um, provide for the safety of our communities. Well, so tell me, what are, what are a few of the major concerns from your point of view? Well, uh, in the, in the cash bail portion, now, granted, a judge already has the ability to uh, give an individual a recognizance bond, which is basically a signature bond, which means they don't have to post cash. There are a couple of issues on 
uh, Class B and C misdemeanors for police officers where uh, we no longer can physically arrest somebody if they commit a B or C misdemeanor when this law takes effect. Um, Give me an example of what would be a B or C misdemeanor where that could be a problem. Um, say, say trespassing. So somebody's in your yard or somebody, somebody comes into your backyard and they're refusing to leave and you call the police. Mm-hmm. Please get there, identify the individual. He's not making any threats. He's just refusing to leave your property. Uh, under the, the current law, we could take that individual into custody and they would be required to either post a $100 cash bond or be recogged by a judge or we could give a notice to appear. Uh, under the, the new law, we are not allowed to take that individual into custody. We would be required to issue them a citation, much like a traffic ticket, uh, and tell them this is your court date within the next 21 days. And pretty much that's it, provided that they're not breaking any other laws. And I don't think our communities would be satisfied with us walking away after an individual refuses to leave their property for just citing them and leaving them there. Sarah, I'd love to hear your perspective on this. Uh, What the police chief describes there, I can see how that could be a problem. Me too. I would hate for that to be what the law is, and it's not. Um, There's a this is something we've been hearing from law enforcement a lot that really is a pretty major misreading or misunderstanding of what that citation system does. What we want is for people who are charged with very low level offenses to, in the vast majority of cases, get a ticket, like a traffic ticket. But police are allowed, and this is in the law, to arrest somebody who's char- who is accused of a B or C misdemeanor if they pose an obvious threat to the community or any person, or they have obvious medical or mental health issues that pose a risk to their own safety. And I'm quoting directly from the law there. So police are actually being given more discretion, not less. Under previous laws, even if something was going on that was in fact very minor, police would feel that they had an obligation to arrest somebody and take them in when maybe a ticket would be more appropriate. Now they have the choice. If somebody's not posing a risk to anyone around them, they should receive a ticket because there's no reason to put somebody through an arrest process. If they do pose a pose a danger to anybody else, it's a pretty broad standard. The police officer can decide that and take them into custody. Chief Keevan, does that give you um, some assurance there, based on on what Sarah is describing? Would that would that alleviate your concerns? Well, I totally understand what Sarah is saying, but that is um, again, my scenario was the individual's not making any threats; he's just refusing to leave. Mm. Well, he's not a threat, but he is making a threat because he's a threat to the community or any person. And again, that's language that police officers use all the time to make decisions about who they get to arrest and who they don't. And frankly, I find it really surprising that police, you know, police groups who do every day make these decisions about who's a threat and who's not based on all sorts of stuff. Right. Not just verbal threats, but what they're doing and what they what they're what you know what their behavior has been thus far and everything else you know this is the exact same kind of language that we use in lots and lots of other provisions that have been in place for decades i really don't see a situation where an officer will find their hands tied by this because it is so clear that if they are a threat to the community you are allowed to make an arrest which means you're allowed to escort them from where they are 
put them in a police car and take them to the station. Police Chief uh, Keevan, I want to put this back on you. I know that was not your only concern about this bill. Um, what's something else that, that you have some anxiety about? Well, beyond the uh, beyond the bail bond, there is quite a few changes to uh, use of force, and obviously there is uh, current laws that require us to use the least amount of force as possible to take somebody into custody. Mm-hmm. Um, one of the new laws, uh, or one of the new provisions, uh, is requiring that uh, tasers cannot be deployed into someone's back. So if you're having somebody that you're fighting with, you should not be deploying a taser into their back. That's where taser trains us to actually deploy. It is the safest place. What comes out of a taser are two almost like straight little fish hooks that have a barb on them. And mm-hmm. obviously you don't want that anywhere near a person's face. And the back of the body is probably the, the best place to deploy that. There are some concerns. And again, I think all this can be cleared up with legislation uh, that's going to hopefully follow up with this. But there are concerns and there are uh, fears about what is allowed, what amount of force is allowed to be used to take someone into custody, because there are pieces of this legislation that tell us that if we have identified the individual and we can take them into custody at a later date, we are not to use force to make an arrest. Well, you know, quite frankly, you can always take somebody into custody at a later date. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that that seems like a tough standard there. Um, Sarah, d- does that seem like a fair reading of, of that uh, part of the law? No. Um, you know, I will say, you know, on the, on the tasers and the definition of kinetic impact projectiles, you know, I'm not as informed on that, Chief. And honestly, I'm, you know, that will be something that I'm sure is in conversation. But on the question of use of force, this bill, when it talks about arrest, talks about the use of deadly force, not the use of any force. So in the cases of things like escape, right? So if somebody is running away, what the law stops police from doing that they currently can do, and in some cases have done tragically and led to major losses of life that I think a lot of people are upset by, is when somebody is fleeing uh, a nonviolent situation and police use deadly force and, you know, hurt seriously or kill the person to stop that escape. That is what is covered by this law, and that is what is barred. All other uses of non-lethal force can be used to effectuate an arrest. Chief Keevan, the law also includes a requirement that all officers be equipped with body cameras, and this is supposed to happen by 2025. Has your department got any clarity on how this is going to come down, since it it obviously is going to affect you? Uh, Well, I will tell you, and let me finish up on use of force. If you go to page 283 of the bill, you'll realize that it's not just use of deadly force. It is use of any force. So I think uh, if we're trying to convince your um, public that any force is acceptable, then the the devil's in the detail when you read the wording. So page 283 will make it clear that it's not just the use of deadly force. As far as body cameras go, body cameras are something that I personally believe make police officers behave better, Mm -hmm. and I think they make the general public behave better. Um, the, The problem with body cameras is the expense of storing the data. So my community is certainly not a wealthy community, but we're not a, a, a poor community. We could afford to buy body cameras for all of our officers. We do have in-car cameras in all of our patrol squad cars. Um, but the the cost of the body camera is the storage of the data mm-hmm. and 
the redaction. So if somebody files a freedom of information request for our body camera footage, no matter if they want you know a week's worth of footage from one officer or two months' worth of footage from all officers, we're obligated to provide that under the Freedom of Information Act in Illinois. Mm-hmm. The cost of providing that comes with redaction. So there's some great redaction software out there now because we can't show a juvenile face and we can't show an, a person that's uninvolved on that video when we give that out under FOIA. There's redaction software now where we can you know, block out someone's face and it takes it all the way through the video. We also can't share uh, personally identifying information, date of birth, driver's license number, social security number, well, that's not something that's as easily removed from the video. That is a minute-by-minute watch it to to remove it out. Now, we have had conversations with the director of the Illinois State Police through the Southern Illinois Police Chiefs Association, and I think a great solution would be that if the state of Illinois would maintain, say, host all the data, so no matter what, and the technology is available to to make this happen, so no, no matter what, uh, video uh, body camera platform I use, it would be stored in the cloud. Mm-hmm. And say, and I don't know that it'd be the state police, maybe it's a separate state group that's designed to do this. They would host and technically own all the data. So freedom of information requests would go to that entity. That, um, I mean, that seems the, a great solution. That way these individual departments wouldn't have to try to finesse all these details you're talking about. Do you, do you know if there's interest be, in the state in doing that, Chief Keevan? I think the director of the state police is open to that idea because in Illinois, like with our criminal data information under our uh, LEADS, Law Enforcement Information Data System, um, we subscribe to the state police to say, you provide this information, we'll run somebody's name, and then you give us information back on their uh, criminal record. Well, we pay a fee for that. So I think there would be some economies of scale because if you're buying for all of the state to host the data and redaction software and personnel to do that, I think it would cost me less as a government entity if I was in a partnership with all government entities. And I also think it clears some of the fears, although I don't believe it's an easy thing to manipulate the video, Mm -hmm. but I think it would clear some of the fears of those who may not have trust of their local police agency that a state agency is hosting and owning the data. I would have access to my own data. Mm-hmm. Obviously, I could not change it, but I could download it for court purposes, uh, but it would be hosted somewhere else. So I think, you know, those kind of conversations, you know, this, this bill has a lot of information in it, and there were a lot of things that are, that are very good in the bill. There are a lot of things that were, I believe, detrimental to public safety in the bill. But if anything, it has caused us to start having these conversations to say, you know, how can we do this better? And that's one of those things, because although those who um, don't necessarily believe everything that's coming from their police chiefs, they'll tell you that, well, the chiefs say they want body cameras, and the officers say they want body cameras, but they're not doing anything to move in that direction. It's pure and simple, the expense of, of storing the data and providing that information out um, via redacted software or redacted mm-hmm. version. So, I think this may be a solution to that, but again, it's early uh, conversations with the director of the state police. He was open to the idea, but, you know, obviously he'd have to, you know, see what that cost would be and how they would share that cost to determine whether or not they would be willing or that some state entity would be willing to host that data for us. Okay. 
Well, it's been it's been interesting to hear. It seems like this might be one point um, where there is some agreement here. Um, you said that you see some good things in this and, and that um, maybe there's a way to do these body cameras in a way that, that people would actually welcome. Sarah, I know you've been a, a big supporter of this uh, bill that's now become law. What would you want us to be watching um, in the next couple months as this discussion continues and law enforcement organizations are saying, here's, here's some changes we want here and there? You know, I think something like what the chief just said about data, I I totally understand. It's one of the reasons the ba- the body camera uh, part of the law is spaced out the way it is so that smaller jurisdictions don't have to comply as quickly. Because, yeah, there absolutely are issues that Chicago worked through in terms of when we implemented body cameras, how we handled that data. Um, I do, though, want to say that we should really be paying attention to what the law says. And I know groups um, who have been working on the bill are going to be making a lot of efforts to make sure people see the text. Because, you know, I really, I unfortunately can't just leave it that, you know, as as the, the 283 page that was mentioned clearly states that an officer is justified in the use of any force which he reasonably believes, based on the totality of the circumstances, to be necessary to affect the arrest and of any force which he reasonably believes, based on the totality of the circumstances, to be necessary to defend himself or another from bodily harm while making that arrest. It then goes on to limit deadly force. So I would really urge everybody to make sure that they're they're looking at the actual language and that they're hearing from multiple sides, you know, and paying attention to what lots of different groups are saying about this bill, because it's really, really important that we talk about what's really in here and what we were really trying to do as we move forward to implement it. Well, I appreciate you both taking the time today um, to share your thoughts on this. We are unfortunately out of time, but Sarah Stout, a senior policy analyst and staff attorney for Chicago Appleseed, I want to thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you so much for having me. And Edwardsville Police Chief Jay Keevan, thank you so much. I sure appreciate the opportunity to speak with you. This is St. Louis on the Air on St. Louis Public Radio, 90.7 KWMU. If you learned something new from today's episode, consider leaving us a review and rating on Apple Podcasts on the App Store. It's the easiest way to help people discover our show. We appreciate it. Thank you. Support comes from the Missouri Forest Products Association, providing more than 41,000 jobs in the production of wood pallets, railroad ties, white oak barrels, hardwood floors, and more. Details at ChooseWood.com.